Okay, cool. Uh, welcome again to another Scottish documentary podcast. Today's offering is a masterclass recorded way back at the start of 2012 with award-winning producer Bart Simpson. Bart produced the uh, well-known documentary The Corporation, which uh, won at Sundance um, and went on to be shown all over the world. It's described as a documentary exploring the curious history, inner workings, controversial impacts and potential future of corporations. And then he produced Frederick Gerettin's Bananas, uh, I think I've pronounced that right, which uh, was about Nicaraguan um, banana workers battling against Dole Food Company and their use of banned pesticides. Uh, most of the bits I've singled out for the podcast are in reference to the corporation. Uh, quite interesting, I think, to hear from a producer uh, rather than a director for a change. I will say the sound quality isn't perfect. Uh, you do quite often hear the microphone rustling and on occasion Bart swallowing. Um, but please do forgive this. Um, there's not much I can do about it. And it is, you know, interesting things that he's talking about. Anyway, we'll start off with Bart talking a little bit about his technique for approaching contributors uh, to be interviewed for the film and whether or not they complained about the ankle, uh, their ankle, and uh, whether or not they complained about the angle uh, of the film or the way they were portrayed. What is a corporation? It is, under the law, a legal person. These are a special kind of person who have no moral conscience, designed by law to be concerned only for their stockholders. I just can't be personally responsible. Maybe you'd better incorporate There are companies that make our lives better, and that's a good thing. The problem comes in the profit motivation. Liz Claiborne jackets, $178, and the workers were paid 74 cents. Nike assigns a time frame, 6.6 minutes to make the shirt. That means the wages come for three-tenths of 1% of the retail price. Of course they make a profit, and it's a good thing. In our search for wealth and for prosperity, we created something that's going to destroy us. I never gave a thought to what we were taking from the earth. I didn't have an environmental vision. Endeavor station there is opportunity when the september 11 situation happened the first thing you thought about was well how much is gold up you can manipulate consumers is it ethical i don't know but our rule is to move products it's always going to be there so you may as well have faith in it there are those who intend that one day everything will be owned by somebody. Within less than 10 years, a handful of global companies will own directly or through license the actual genes that make up the evolution of our species. I said, you know, this is news. This is stuff people need to know. And he said, we just paid $3 billion for these television stations. The news is what we say it is. Capitalism today commands the towering heights and has displaced politics and politicians as the new high priests and reigning oligarchs of our system. Does there need to be some measure of accountability? Yes. And I think the business community recognizes that. Okay, guys, enough bullshit. I guess the first thing I'd want to talk about is how we started approaching interview subjects for this, because you can imagine that would probably be a problem if you're uh, hoping to get high-level CEOs involved in this kind of conversation. Uh, and uh, you know, one of your one of your main points is that uh, the corporate form itself is psychopathic. So what does that say about the people who actually are in charge of the companies? Um, it, it's it's really an ethical question that. Um, that uh, you run up against because we didn't 
say the full story. We didn't give away this, this part of the film uh, and our approaches, but we didn't lie either. You can't lie. I guess you could, but it's going to allow for a particular kind of filmmaking that's easily open to attack and um, dismissal as propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. And we were honestly interested in hearing what, um, what the people in those positions at, uh, at, uh, at various corporations had to say about um, how their behavior is impacted by being an in, in an institution that requires a certain type of activity. Um, so what we did is we hired a researcher, and uh, her job was to uh, was to tailor each approach to each uh, interview subject in a particular way. Uh, we were also very lucky because we came at a particular time when the idea of corporate social responsibility was a new thing. Um, uh, during the 70s and 80s, of course, there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of groundwork done by the ecology movement, um, uh, human rights movement, et cetera, et cetera, to start to get these questions of how we should behave on a grand scale into the atmosphere. So uh, there were a few CEOs that actually uh, started to, uh, that wanted to be seen at the, as being at the forefront of being in the, co of, of the corporate social responsibility movement. So once we got one person who had that, point of view uh, involved, uh, who was from a major company, it became easier to bring in other people. Uh, of course, it's easier to get people like Noam Chomsky, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to be involved um, in that sense. But for us, the struggle was actually getting uh, the right CEOs, um, the right economists, et cetera, involved in this so we could have a broad range of, of views on this topic. Um, yeah, so, uh, so we certainly weren't the first filmmaking team to take, you know, to do this idea of tailoring interviews and, or tailoring approaches and, and withholding certain information to actually get the interview, but it worked for us. There were only two, uh, two people that I can think of. Uh, one was actually, one was during shooting, which isn't exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Michael Walker from the Fraser Institute there. Uh, we interviewed him um, and, uh, and then we kept shooting him in the office when he was on a phone call, et cetera, and he wasn't too happy about that. But beyond that, I mean, the, the uh, Ray Anderson, who you saw there, who was really one of the breakthrough characters of the film uh, as the, uh, as the um, uh, sort of uh, um, environmentally aware uh, corporate leader, uh, he, uh, he said that uh, he might not have gotten involved if he'd known the premise of the film. Uh, that being said, uh, he comes out looking really good in the film. And we're not, uh, we weren't out to really uh, attack anybody personally. Uh, when we approached these people, uh, the, the, the way that we pitched it was, this is a documentary on the, uh, the birth, evolution, impacts, and possible futures of the modern business corporation. So it's a, it's a very kind of bland statement that's open to a lot of different interpretation. And, uh, and even though we had our point of view, we're certainly open to surprise. Uh, because if we weren't open to surprise, then what's the point of turning on the camera, right? So, um, okay, well, let's move on to, there, there's one thing I want to talk about in terms of how we shot the film, because we'll, we'll stick to the production side first before we move into a little bit of editing and then, uh, uh, et cetera, down the line. We're interviewing a variety of people, uh, you know, economists, activists, CEOs, academics, about various ideas about the corporate forum. So, um, if you have those people in their environments, that's going to allow a particular read by the audience, right? You know, if you see a, if you see a CEO, uh, you know, in a, you know, behind a bookshelf, um, that's a pretty nice looking bookshelf, and you see um, maybe a grassroots activist uh, in a uh, protest camp somewhere, uh, 
that's going to allow for a particular read as well. And we had to be very flexible as to where we were shooting. Um, sometimes, when possible, we'd fly interview subjects over to the house so we could interview from there. Uh, sometimes it was a small crew going to a hotel where we knew that a CEO was for a particular day or something. So we had to be very fast, mobile, and flexible. Um, so the idea was to throw the blue screen back there just so we could put something behind there in post. Not sure what yet. It would depend on, uh, depend on how the film was cut, you know, what sort of came up during the edit, all that kind of thing. And uh, we tried a bunch of stuff. Uh, for, for Michael Walker, we actually had for a while uh, flying um, uh, rows of uh, uh, sewing machines going behind him. And uh, for the cow sequence, there were you know, cows sort of moving around. But it got too distracting, because you're really only seeing these people for 30 seconds at a time. So um, having a uniform, simple black background was a way of, um, I think, you know, making it easier for the people to be seen in a common kind of environment. So maybe, you know, as human beings, we can judge, right? And it's a way to maybe challenge that and not have that as prevalent when you're seeing the person for a short amount of time speaking to you. The hope is that we'd be seeing the person and not necessarily the, what that person is representing in a large way, right? It was, it was a lot of footage. Uh, we shot 120 hours or something of material, and it was uh, a long, long edit time. Mark liked to work with a lot of test screenings. And I'm sure a lot of you do test screenings too. Uh, this was a bit of a challenge when like our, our editor, fantastic editor, lived on a small island off the coast of, of Vancouver. We had to keep flying footage to her in a seaplane. And uh, um, uh, we had, as I say, over 100 hours of material. So our first assembly was something like 18 hours long, uh, which, is a bit, <laughs> which is a bit of a long. A, long, uh, a bit of a commitment for people to actually sit down and watch. So the first, uh, the first person who watched it, I remember, took a day and a half to watch the whole thing. And there were all tears in his eyes at the end. But, uh, but you know, each person who, who agreed to come to a test screening would watch the film, fill out a form, get into a discussion, and uh, talk about you know, what worked for them and what didn't. And part of, it, part of this process was, was finding and this also goes back to the research stage before we started shooting. Um, this was a film meant to last. And I don't think I really realized the impact of that until now when it, somehow it's still being seen and referenced, which is quite, quite nice. Um, so some of the stories that we picked, there's Oblivion Water story, for example. Uh, a lot of people um, who are sort of, you know, who we knew who were in the more activist realm knew about that. They go, oh, that's an old story. You know, that's an old story. You know, we, we've heard about it. Time and time again, uh, even the growth hormone story is a relatively old story. But the idea was to pick the best stories we could so that um, we can make our point as clearly as we could, and also in hopes that you know, not everybody's of that kind of activist ilk. So you know, hopefully, that will reach to a larger audience. And since the stories we think are the best stories, it will last over a period of time. Um, so, uh, so part of the feedback screening process was to find which stories were really not working, even though that we thought they were the best ones, which just didn't have that same flow, which ones, uh, which ones needed more explanation than we had time for, even given our gigantic running time, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we invited filmmakers, non-filmmakers, um, academics, et cetera, uh, to nobody who, who's actually in the film, of course, just to, get, to kind of give us a, a, an idea of what it is that we, would, we were succeeding at and what we weren't. Any questions on that? Yeah, I'm talking about kind of 18 hours, Scott, sorry, Bob. Yeah. I mean, 
Well, this was to a small audience of one, right? There was, a, there was a, uh, Mark's previous collaborator who had worked on manufacturing consent with him was invited in, and a handful of other people. I think it was because this film, uh, I might have, not have mentioned it before, but it was started in 2007. I came on board in, uh, in uh, late 2008, initially as production manager, and then grew into producer as the film went on. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody had been involved with the film for so long by that point. Um, September 11th had happened, and that ended up canceling a lot of our interviews for obvious reasons. A lot of the CEOs said, look, I can't do this right now. I've got other things I have to worry about. So that pushed our schedule. The whole film took about six years to make. Well, seven, really. So by this point, uh, 2002, uh, everybody was really starting to hit their head against the wall as to, you know, let's see what we have, what do we still have to shoot, et cetera, et cetera. So for a few people, 18 hours was not a bad idea in my point of view, at least the way that, at least the way that Mark was used to working and Jennifer, so. What do you test in 18 hours? It's a no, it's a types of stories, really. It's the types of stories, it's who's, you know, who's working. There might be somebody who's a terrific speaker who's, uh, who's not you know, contributing at the same level just because of the nature of the, what they're talking about with another person. Um, we're also very conscious about trying to include a variety of people, men, women, people of color, et cetera, et cetera, just to try and get a, a big thing. And one of the criticisms we had when we released the film was you've got a lot of white guys in there, which is a valid uh, note, but and the unfortunate thing about our society is that uh, a lot of CEOs are white guys. So, uh, you know, yeah, you have to, yeah. So we just had to say that's a valid concern and, you know, this is a situation. Um, but, but yeah, it's just trying to find out who was, who was really working and who wasn't. And I think by that point, we'd, everybody had been working so much on individual stories and everything. We just wanted to make sure that we were going down the right path. Probably, yeah, probably, you know, by transcripts, by, you know, um, the filmmakers kind of sequestering themselves for a bit longer. Yeah, could, could do. <laughs> I wish I had an answer for you. I mean, basically the thing is like, this is the, the you know, this was the decision uh, that worked. What's that? I'm not advertising for it. I'm just saying this is what happened. And uh, uh, it was a, um, uh, you know, for the particular way that the directors worked, it was, uh, it was, you know, ultimately useful because they got some decent feedback out of it. And uh, you know, our the nice eighteen hours person will forever live on in our memory as a <laughs> as a kind person. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Uh, Bart's now going to be talking about the marketing and distribution of the corporation uh, before briefly talking about the film Bananas and the coming about of Big Boys Gone Bananas. So sit tight. This is before Facebook. If we can remember a world before Facebook and before Twitter and everything, and. Um, uh, Part of our strategy to reach, reach the audience was to keep in touch with uh, you know, as many um, communities that were active in different interests as we could. Um, one reason this film is kind of works, in my opinion, from a marketing perspective only, is that you've got so many things going on. You can, you've got people who are interested in water rights, people who are interested in corporate social responsibility, people who are interested in uh, uh, you know, sweatshop um, activism, all those kinds of things. So there's lots of different target groups that you can approach and get involved uh, to spread word about the film. So um, we worked with a great social marketing person uh, who'd done um, awareness campaigns for NGOs, nonprofits, etc. And this is in the, uh, again, the early 2000s. And, um, 
and started to build, to, to sort of firm up those, those pre-existing relationships so that as we got closer to a release, um, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, these groups would be ready to act um, to help promote the film. Um, we premiered at uh, the Toronto Film Festival in 2003 with the two hour, 45 minute cut. And uh, we finished just in time. Uh, it showed on, uh, showed on beta SP at the time. Um, and uh, based on you know, a further look at it there and at uh, screening in Amsterdam, uh, we cut it to the final release, uh, theatrical release length of two hours and 25 minutes. Um, so we released in Canada after Sundance in 2004, and uh, we were lucky enough to, to um, have a theatrical run in, in Vancouver and Toronto for about six months in theaters, which is, was huge. And, uh, and also decent release in the States uh, and in um, uh, other parts of the world too, UK, Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Again, we were a bit lucky because what happened was Michael Moore's films had kind of laid the groundwork for allowing uh, feature documentaries to be seen by a wider round of, amount of people. I mean, all of us would probably say that people were ready to walk, watch documentaries anyway, but the distributors might not have seen that. Uh, they didn't see the huge success that Michael Moore's films had. So we kind of came in on the coattails of that, and uh, um, there was a, that was a really interesting period, around 2003 to about 2006 or seven, when, uh, when distributors, I think in hindsight, started to uh, do a shotgun effect and just take a look at a lot of different documentaries because I think personally from, a, from an economic standpoint, never mind the content, um, documentaries are relatively inexpensive to make. They can get people out there and uh, the returns would be relatively high. So uh, there might have been some um, overreaction from the distributors, certain distributors saying, well, it, you know, it doesn't matter what type of documentary it is, let's throw it in the theater and see what happens. Um, and uh, as re the result is you didn't see all documentaries doing well in theaters. Um, uh, also, the economic downturn happened. So now, once again, you're in a situation where it's a struggle to get certain documentaries out in the marketplace. So it's uh, a bit frustrating. Um, so going back to, the, uh, to our marketing strategy, we had, um, we had these like-minded organizations ready by keeping an email contact with them. And the way that, I mean, it was a lot of grunt work. Uh, what happened was every city that we were going to open in Canada and the States, um, and to some extent in Europe, uh, we had two people on staff phoning these organizations saying, okay, we're going to be showing in your, in your city uh, in exchange for access to your email list and your membership list and you promoting the film. Uh, how about um, you being able to set up a table with an information booth about your organization? So that was, you can imagine, I don't know how many calls that would have been, probably two, three hundred, um, you know, and organizing and getting people organized. So you might have, again, a water rights group, um, you know, co-sponsoring essentially a film that would show in Winnipeg or in New York or whatever, and, uh, and you know, continue that relationship as we moved into the DVD release. Um, in a way, it's, uh, it's sort of the lo-fi version of what happens now with Facebook and Twitter, et cetera. You find, the, you find the group, the target audiences, have them be champions for the film, have them spread the word, and also find a way to have them personally invested in, in helping the film get out. Now, <clears throat> we weren't going to get, you know, we, we, weren't, we aren't rich people. Again, we were working out of a house. 
So uh, I, can say, I can say that we were hoping people would become champions for benign reasons. We didn't want to you know, take advantage of anybody. We wanted to kind of come up with a shared win-win situation. And we're trying to make the best of our resources because we simply couldn't do it otherwise. Uh, we ended up going with Mongrel Media in Canada, um, one of the bigger ones there and uh, Zeitgeist in the States. And actually, when we were negotiating with, uh, with the distributor in the US, um, there were opportunities open to us that, I guess we had a choice, ultimately. The choice was have a lot of prints made, throw them everywhere, and see what happens. So in that sense, there's a thing called a minimum guarantee. So you would get the minimum guarantee, but there's no guarantee that you would get anything afterwards. Or we could go with a smaller house like Zeitgeist, who had done manufacturing consent, et cetera, and it would be like a hand-holding release. So one city, use those same prints, go to another city, et cetera, et cetera. And it might, have, <clears throat> it might have hurt us, but I think in the long run, it was kind of the more sensible thing to do, especially with our strategy of phoning each city we were opening. Uh, not so much, no, no. They did to some extent, but you're always your own best uh, distributor slash marketer in terms of that kind of thing. Sorry? Yes. Yeah, the deal was we got a percentage, they got a percentage, et cetera, et cetera. So we had, for, in the glory days of the film, we had uh, film production, we had uh, maybe about a year and a half where we had a you know, good-sized team. We had our editor, our assistant editor, uh, two office people, myself, Mark. So that's a decent size. But as time went on, we had to let a lot of people go and, and sort of keep soldiering on ourselves. Um, you get by, right? It's, we weren't getting rich at all. It was, I think, one of the things my psychiatrist said to me once was that uh, you learn how to live simply in this in this industry, um, and you do. I mean, I've you know I've got a good life. I'm pretty pretty happy. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not rich, but uh, I, I'm rich by the amount of experiences I have, and um, I still hold out hope that you know I'm gonna have something gigantically extravagant one day, but you know, that's okay. that's okay. So I don't know, I mean, you know, it's like all of us are in better condition than a lot of other people in the world. So, so we, we survive, right? There's ways to get by. I, the, the one thing that's interesting is that this was a single purpose company. And usually this, if you're in an industrial documentary model, um, you've got a couple films in development, one film in production, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, we either weren't that smart or we're just too, too focused, too narrowly focused. So this is the only thing we had going on. And uh, that means that you attract people to it that are very, very dedicated to the cause, right? And once it's over, you can look back and say, okay, well, job done, now what's next? And that was a big question afterwards, right? I think a lot of people, a lot of us burned out afterwards. It was, uh, it was an emotional time when you're um, finishing something like this. It has so much person hour investment, you've got people who, you know, normally uh, for a living work on, uh, work on high paying corporate gigs and say, forget about it, I want to, you know, donate some time to this and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's, some films take that, right? And increasingly more, a lot of films take that. But uh, yeah, that's where it's at. Archive is, as those of you who dealt with archive know, can be very expensive. And uh, not only visual, but Audio. There's a uh, there's a bit in the film about uh, Happy Birthday, the song Happy Birthday, and we deliberately didn't include it because it was so much money, um, and all we just have is people mouthing the words, and uh, and with a, a voiceover and everything, it costs too much to actually make it to actually license it. So instead, we sent people to other cities to do more interviews. Um, 
But there's a great website called, which might not be so new to some of you now, called archive.org. Um, and it has a lot of um, uh, royalty-free um, and uh, public domain material. Uh, so a lot of the material you saw, there was some of the, uh, some of the spraying, uh, the DDT thing, uh, the uh, plastics, um, chemicals, cartoon. All that stuff was from archive.org, uh, specifically the Prelinger archives. And it's a really great um, resource for filmmakers. The Prelinger archives, because archive.org has a number of subsets. And Prelinger specializes in a lot of the um, US propaganda films, old commercials, things like that. We used a ton of old commercials. And uh, it was really great, because you could just plug in keywords and see if it would show up. Then you download it in an MP3 format. Uh, no, no, MP, I forget what format it was, but it was old now. Anyway, so <laughs> um, we backed it up on a tape, which is kind of funny now, and then re-imported that into the system. But um, yeah, that really saved us a lot of money, and it was, uh, was you know, with Jennifer's uh, creative work on the material, really made it move forward for an inexpensive amount. There we go. As usual, thanks for listening, and hope you enjoyed. Get subscribing to our SoundCloud and iTunes for more classes. Uh, it's scottdoc.com that has the clips of bar under the masterclass tab and next week's episode will likely be a class with Boris Mitic uh, I think I've pronounced that right uh, where we'll be looking at some of Boris's incredible advice for film festivals and getting the attention of commissioning and editors um, so all that to look forward to anyway, bye for now <laughs>